Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. August 9th, 2021, episode 199, Observations. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. Kevin England with you here. Another episode about experiences for local beekeepers and living the life of an active beekeeper. Yeah. Recording on a Monday today. There's just uh, too much packed in over the weekend to sneak in behind the microphone, but I wanted to get something out before heading west to EAS. So here I am at five something in the morning, trying to get something in before I got to go to work. We're coming off a nice weather week here in New Jersey. Um, yeah, typically this time of year, it's in the high 90s, mid 90s, hot, humid. And that's what's going to happen this week. But last week, it was kind of very nice. We came back from Seattle and it was... 70s and 80s in the day, 60s at night. Felt like fall, a little weird. But we go back into the normal August pattern for New Jersey, and I'd say all this to talk about the dearth. You know, this year feels more conventional. Now, we've had those summer storms in July, felt like Florida weather, and it cooled off a little bit. And you know, one of the gauges that we have here is that the creek is still running out front. That tells you how much water we've had this year. But it feels like a typical August in New Jersey. Now, last year, the weather played straight through. The plants were in bloom. It was a little bit different. We had a super strong spring this year. But for the record, the conventional dearth is back and we're feeding our bees. And I'll talk more about that when we get to the local hive report. So I'm getting ahead of myself, but I always kind of like to leave a record for myself about the weather patterns going on so I can go back and listen. You know, one of the catalysts for this particular show was to record our beekeeping experiences on a local level, kind of like a diary. And I always like to have a little note of what the weather was doing. That way, when I go back and listen to the different episodes from August, I can kind of say this happened this year and that happened this. Yeah. Okay. Not too much structure this time, as you could tell. <laughs> but I'm going to run through some odds and ends, and I feel like that might get you out of here a little quicker today, but that depends on whether I have the gift of gab. Swarms this time of year, not too common, but not out of the question. That's round table number one or two. An observation about robber screens, an observation about washboarding, hawking. Seems like the suffering has been going on since ancient times. Wet. I'm going to talk about moisture content in uncapped honey that you might consider extracting and offer up an idea. I saw on the web. I guess from there I'm going to wing it. But I do have some topics floating around in my head, including my shopping list for EIS. And a quick aside about our 2021 extracting experience. I think that's going on. I think first I'm just going to share some simple current events and get a few messages out of the way before we get on with it. So let me jump into that. Roundtable number one. August swarm. A swarm in May is worth a load of hay. A swarm in June is worth a silver spoon. 
a swarm in July isn't worth a fly. That old adage is uh, something that you see in the books and hear every once in a while. So riddle me this, what is a swarm in August worth? Ironically, Bob Gloss and I both got swarm calls on the same day last week. He had one in Hillsboro, I had one in Ringo's. We decided to knock off, well, he's retired. I knocked off early by an hour. I started an hour early, so I don't feel bad about that, but ran out, met Bob at a central point, and we went out to his swarm in Hillsboro. Wah, wah, wah. Unfortunately, it was a bald hornet nest hanging in a tree. The two of us suited up, got some clippers out, clipped it off, put it in a bag, and Bob took it home, and the homeowner was trying to you know, <laughs> sorry, children. <laughs> She's running around chasing Bob with the $20 bill. <laughs> Looked like a strip club. <laughs> sorry. That's what conjured up in my head. But she's chasing Bob, trying to give him money. He kept telling her, no, I don't want it. I don't want it. And eventually he uh, asked her to do the proper thing, which was make a donation to VIP. But I felt bad for Bob because he really wanted to put that swarm in his log hive and kind of seed the thing and see if he could get it to overwinter or at least get them, um, you know, acclimated. He's got this bee tree that got cut down and he's been trying to get a swarm to put in that thing all season long. Uh, sometimes my mind, where does it go? We left that location to a better result. Uh, beekeeper, well, this is an interesting thing. Is I did an outreach talk, which you hear me talk about later, and someone walked up to me and said, I have a swarm in a tree. I found it this morning and made arrangements with Bob to get some equipment and take it over there and house the thing. We had the conversation, if you have a swarm, especially this one, it was probably the size of a grapefruit, maybe a little bit bigger. Is it even worth trying? Well, I'll tell the story about the beekeeper in a minute, but really what we wanted to do is just get some drawn comb, put the thing in there and feed it, see what happens. If you could build it out to possibly double nuke by October, by just feeding it and feeding it, it's possible. So we went, collected that swarm, clipped it off the branch, dropped it in the hive and set it up with a person who is not a beekeeper, but wants to be, and green as could be, but he had actually uh, signed on to come to the public outreach talk that I was giving in town, and the morning of the talk discovered this, and he had already ordered equipment with making the decision that he was going to be a beekeeper, so we brought him a setup, put the little swarm into the box and that afternoon his equipment arrived that is what you would call intervention so can you take a swarm from august and get it through it's worth to try for him and if anything he's going to have the experience of managing some bees in a box for the rest of the season i had this thought about august swarms what would cause a swarm to go in august in the beginning, I spent some time talking about our dynamics here in New Jersey. We're in the dearth. We're not on a nectar flow. Last year, if you were on a nectar flow throughout, and it kind of held steady, 
it's possible that you could have colonies so strong that they kept strong through to early August because typically for us, the nectar flow ends first week in July, 4th of July. Sometimes it goes to the 15th, but things taper down by the end of July. But there are years over time that can push out, and you might see late swarms, but this isn't that kind of year. But yet, this swarm was hanging on a tree. So sometimes I think it's either a last-ditch effort by a colony to go ahead and cast off and see if it can hedge its bets, or... It's a colony that left because it's under such pressure for mites. Now, the, the question for this guy is, his name is Michael, whether or not there's a queen in there. So we settled them in the box. They were scenting, meaning Nazanoff gland that collect all the bees, and he started feeding them right away. I'm actually going to go over there a little later today to pick up a bee suit. That I left with him and we'll check in and see whether there's a queen. I think now that they're settled out and out on the comb it would be interesting. If I can get there, there's 10,000 things I have to do today including work. Um, so from that perspective uh, maybe it'll have to wait till we get back. But an August swarm? What the heck, right? If you've got the resources put it in there and see what happens. You can overwinter a single deep or a double nuke it's a risky proposition, but it's worth the try. And, you know, we'll see what we could do to get this guy started. I think that's kind of cool. Around table number two, call this one 200. Yeah. I'm shocked at how fast we got to 200. We're heading to EAS. And my goal was, and I'm still on track, to record episode 200 while we're out there. It would be really neat if I had a production crew that would be able to set us all up and have a live audience and all that stuff. But yeah, we're going to see if we can sneak into a place and record a show. And I'll look to see who's around and invite them in to kind of be an audience. And we'll just see how it manifests. It, it might be Bob Gloss and I sitting there with two people for all I Because <laughs> we're going to make the arrangements on a fly. You know, I would like to tell you concrete things right now, but I have to see how things shake out, whether we can do it in the conference center or whether some other place like a restaurant. So here's what I'm going to say. If you're there and you want to sit in, look at our website Wednesday night or better yet, Thursday morning, and I'll put a meetup place. My thought is we're likely to try and sit down and do the show Thursday afternoon after EIS concludes for the day and we'll see how arrangements play out post something. I kind of have in mind that the show will be what's going on, some reflections of the episodes that we've done, experiences from the catalog and if we can we'll look to see if we can bring in some guests and do some commentary. You know how that works when you do a milestone show. It'll be a bit random and ad hoc and probably not good TV, but, you know, that's how it goes when it's I, me, Kevin, running the whole operation. <laughs> I'm the production crew, the producer, the host, and you'll get what you get, I guess. Uh, one way or another, when we pack up on Saturday for the ride home, we'll have something recorded for 200 and I'll post it when I get back if all else fails. 
I'm going to put a recorder on the dash and Bob Gloss and I can talk to each other on the ride home. <laughs> so I'll come back to EAS later in the episode, some things I have planned for. But this is a beekeeping podcast, so let's just keep it about beekeeping and moving on. I just wanted to get that out of the way early, though. Roundtable number three. This one's called I See What You Did There. The topic's about robbing screens and bee learning patterns. On the Northwest YouTube page, there's a video of robbing screens that you can make for the front entrances of your hive. This week, someone left a very interesting comment with a question that made us pause and think for a moment in one of those rare, hmm, I've got a point there. The question was, if a colony sends out robbers from a hive that has the same type of robber guard installed that you have all through your whole apiary, then wouldn't the bees that have already learned and unlocked the mystery of how to get out be able to get in? Think about that for a second. Because, you know, most of the time when your hives get robbed, it's probably the hive next door robbing the, the little one, you know, it's like the big brother picking on the little brother kind of thing. And if you start to think to yourself, yeah, why wouldn't that bee know it? I mean, we learn how amazing bees are and how fast they adapt and learn and find their ways through things. And if every hive in the apiary has the same trick gadget at the front entrance, then it stands to reason that they all know the secret. It seems plausible that the result would be the bees would get through. But if you take a moment and analyze the design of a robber guard, it kind of lends itself to a not-so-fast moment, at least by my way of thinking. When standing back and evaluating it, there's a bit of behavior that has to be considered. It's one thing to know how to get in and out, but truthfully, part of the reason that a robber guard is successful is the physical barrier for entry. And let's not forget you have to get past the guards. Think of it in reverse. Guards will stop robber bees because they do not have the same scent as their nest mates. On inspection, they would be turned away or confronted at the door. If you watch robber bees, you'll see that they try to exploit a weak colony by getting past its unguarded entrance or they just force their way through some sort of hole in the woodenware. They're employing a technique where they look for an opening and they make a run for it. If they can find a way past the guard without being inspected, they're in like Flynn. Now, considering the robber guard, it provides two advantages. The first one is it creates a physical barrier so the bees can't dart into the gap. And even if the robber is in, you know, you said it. They're in on how to get in, how the entrance design works. They still have to come through the gate and be inspected because a good robber guard forces the bees to land and walk through a choke point. The mother colony's guards posted there. And while you might know the trick to get in to the alternate entrance design, you're going to be confronted at the door if you're not a local. At least after considering the question and working it out, that's what I came up with. 
That's why Robert Gordon's still work, even though everybody has unlocked the mystery of it. Who knows, though, perhaps if a robber landed on the outside of the box and studied a path, they might find a way to sneak through, but I suspect that's not the case, as typically you're going to encounter robbers bobbing and weaving, right? You've seen that they look like a boxer trying to come in for a punch. They're looking for that opening to exploit. They put on a heck of a show when a hive has an entrance guard, but they really can't get through. Now, if the colony is completely weak and has no defense at the gate, then you're just going to see the onslaught where they're pouring through. They've overwhelmed everybody, and it looks like pandemonium bedlam. In that case, robber guard really isn't going to help you. It's such an interesting question. I'll have a link to the homemade robber screens video that Bob Kloss recorded that I'm talking about where that comic came from. Roundtable number four called this one, Not the Abs. I saw something on Facebook that made me think, this might be a good platform to pose a question for folks, see if we can get an answer to this. It stems from a beekeeper in Vancouver who observed that there was an uptick in bees washboarding when he did the inspections around the region. Upon posting this observation, there were others who chimed in to say they'd seen an uptick in the same thing. So if you're not familiar with washboarding, the behavior from the bees, they stand on the surface of the front of the hive or other places, and they move back and forth. And they go up and they go down and they go up and down, forward and back, forward and back, and all of a sudden everybody's doing it. Now, this beekeeper from Vancouver observed that it was happening in his different apiaries, and it led to even further observations of bees filling in cracks with propolis and new dark lines inside the hives where scratches were and spots in the colonies where bees were building out propolis. So here's the question. What if we as a group looked to see if we saw any uptick in this kind of behavior come midsummer and winter. And what might we make of this observation if something, you know, something were to come where we'd all say, okay, this thing, this, this milestone has occurred. Beekeepers could establish that this is occurring at this time of year. What does it mean to us? I just talked about the washboard propolis work of bees in a talk recently, and I think it's safe to say that no one has really landed on it concrete reason as to why they're doing it. For me, I suspected it's about burnishing the surface for some reason, ridding it or prepping it at the microscopic level, and only the bees can grasp the purpose. One forum poster postulated that it's some form of compensation for younger bees who are not drawing comb and they simply might be burnishing their wax plates in anticipation of becoming foragers. That might explain why it's all going on on the outside of the hive, but I, I don't know. Never heard that idea, so it's one I want to lock in, and maybe that's an interesting thought. It's an interesting topic, and what drew me in is another beekeeper in the Yakima area was the first to chime in that they were seeing the same thing. Kevin Muller.
Yakima, if you didn't know it. It's the city where Carly's grandfather lives and is near Vancouver and Seattle, for those of you who are iCarly fans. <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny, and I bet you know what I mean. You could tell how old someone is by the shows that they should not know about, but they do because their kids watch them religiously. I could say that we probably watched more than three quarters of all the iCarly shows live back in the day. I go on further to say that that useless bit of trivia is because I need to give you a reason for what I'm about to do. In one of the episodes, somebody promotes, pronounces it Yakima. <laughs> and when we were out in Seattle two weeks ago, every time we saw a sign going down the highway, one of us would say it out loud in that obnoxious way, Yakima. <laughs> uh, I was somewhere when I went on that journey. Oh yeah, Yakima Beekeeper. <laughs> The cool part of this observation was that it was corroborated by another nearby beekeeper. That's the whole point of this little foray, by the way. And it got me to thinking about other plausible reasons. This is the way my brain works. Beekeeper in Vancouver says he starts seeing it in all his yards. He posts it and other people are chiming in and go, yeah, I'm seeing it too. Yeah, I'm seeing it too. I think that's kind of cool. Now, did we see that in New Jersey? I'm not seeing it here. I have seen it in New Jersey. It just isn't here yet. So the question is, maybe there's a time when we should be sending polls out saying, when do you see this? Is it common? Does it always happen at the end of August in New Jersey, but the beginning of August or end of July in Yakima? I don't know. It's fascinating to me about what it is, right? Maybe there's something in that ecosystem in Seattle area, at that time of year, common to that region, that was the catalyst for the bees doing it. But the rest of us would not observe the behavior because we don't have that factor over here in our ecosystem on the East Coast until later in the year. So the suspicion about them rubbing wax, well, maybe it's because they collected some sort of propolis. In my talk Recently, I mentioned that there's a suspicion that the bees are using propolis to burnish the surface in order to spread antimicrobial, antibacterial surfaces. That's what they're doing. They're burnishing and polishing everything. That's another plausible idea that I've heard. And maybe it's because that propolis that they use came available in that region. So someday, somehow, someone will come up with the proper answer. This is why the bees do what they do for washboarding. Until then, we'll just have to keep working on our clues. And that's the whole reason I brought this all up. Are you seeing it? Do you have an idea? Kevin at bkcorner.org. I've always been one to think that we could crowdsource the answer for this if we all took notes about our observation and shared it amongst ourselves. Hence the platform, right? I get to talk to a lot of folks, and you could probably write in and tell me what your notes are, and then I could collate that and give it back to you. Kevin at bkcorner.org if you have any thoughts. Roundtable number five, I call this one hawking. Yeah, I've been lamenting about the catbirds picking off our bees. It seems that I share a frustration that apparently, unbeknownst to me, is centuries old. The Bing homepage 
for July 31st featured an image of a dozen or so colorful birds perched on a thorny bush, all peering in various ways. And of course it's captivating, but if you scroll down, the caption expressed sentiment about the beauty of the birds and how photographic they were, but it was the title. Behind that idyllic scene was the story that these were bee-eaters. Bee-eaters. They physically call the birds bee-eaters. Bee-eaters are described as a non-passerine bird mostly found in Africa, Asia, with a few in Europe, Australia, and New Guinea. Wikipedia says, quote, They are characterized by rich colored plumage, slender bodies, and usually elongated central tail feathers, all have long turned-down bills and medium-to-long wings, which may be pointed around. Male and female plumages are usually similar, end quote. Perhaps I need to look closer at our catbird foes, as I've learned a few things when I browse through Wikipedia entry about that, and wonder if the lineage of our birds share the same traits. A bird that sits in waiting in on a perch hops off, snatches what they're after with their bill as opposed to their feet like a raptor, and then returns to the same or alternating perch is practicing hawking, H-A-W-K-I-N-G, hawking. The bee eaters have adapted to consume their prey and have unlocked ways to eat the venomous insects by repeating repeatedly hitting and rubbing the quarry against a surface while they apply pressure through squeezing. This dual action rubs off the stinger and squeezes the insect so much that the venom is discharged. That's from Wikipedia too. I didn't write that. Now I never thought about this, but maybe, maybe the wasps and bees of that region are more poisonous. Because I think our catbirds gulp them down in one whole shot. I've never seen them sit and pick and take them. They fly on the wing just the way they sit. They hawk. They set on something. They look for their prey. They fly in. They pick it off. And then they go land somewhere and nosh it down. But I guess I'm going to have to watch them closer and see if they do any of those behaviors for the venomous stuff. As to the bee catchers, the wiki article says that their take is skewered towards honeybees and that the insects consume wasps and various pollinators, but honeybees can compromise, compromise, comprise <laughs> over 85% of what they pick off. 85%? Ooh, I thought we had a bad. The article goes on. And calling out that these bee eaters do not necessarily raid apiaries of beekeepers, but they stalk the foraging ground. And an interesting note was that the foragers stop leaving the hive. They realize that bees going out don't come back, and they actually knock off foraging. The bee eater birds sitting out there waiting for their prey, when they stop coming, they move closer and go into the apiary and start picking them off. I never knew about this. That's really interesting. 
It's an age-old problem. Who knew? The article expresses that writers such as Aristotle and Virgil both advised beekeepers to kill the birds. I'm not advocating that. <laughs> just say. I just want to know if we can all get along. If you're interested in that, Bee Eater from Wikipedia, a free encyclopedia, there's paragraphs and paragraphs about them. And I'll have a link in the show notes. I found that really fascinating. We're not alone. Roundtable number six, call this one wet. It's about moisture content in honey. This year, it's been kind of strange, and I've heard this report uh, from a couple different people. I think I even mentioned it on the last show. Typically, the bees will pack in the nectar, ripen it, and they will cap it off by July time frame. But for whatever reason, this year, 2021, they've been slow to do that. That could be a study on its own, like, is there a shortage in wax for some reason? Because of, I, I don't know the answer to that. But my point is that you get to the July time frame for New Jersey, and you want to make sure that you pull your honey supers, measure, and if need be, treat. You get to that critical mass of mite population, and you got to do something about it. And you can't dilly-dally, because... Traditionally in New Jersey, you have the dearth and then you come back to the fall flow. And if you have any aspiration of fall flow, you got to get your treatments off. So beekeepers in New Jersey plan from July 4th to 56 days, if you're using Apivar, to get their treatments in and set up for the asters and the goldenrod coming for fall. In our case... The honey wasn't capped. just wasn't capped. Box after box after box. We went away to Seattle, and when we came back, the good news is three of the four boxes did get capped while we were gone. So it was just that final push that needed. But I had three or four honey supers that we extracted that had uncapped honey. Now, the typical test, the old wives beekeeper story, old salt is... Take the frame, tilt it, shake it. If nothing comes out, it's ripe enough. I have a different gauge. I've talked about this on the show. I like to look at the cells, and when nectar is put in the cell itself, it's to the surface. When it's dried, it's sunken in half to three-quarter. Half is better. And you could look at it. It looks viscous. It doesn't look wet in a wet kind of liquidy way, like water drops. When you have nectar in there, it looks wet like water drops. There's something about it, it almost looks like a, a marble-type surface. So when Sharon and I pulled the honey and looked, I looked at all the different frames, and we took frames that were capped and put them in one pile, frames that were partially capped and put them in another pile, and frames that were not capped still open, and put them in a third pile. And we did extract in different manners. Now, when we finished extracting that batch, we looked at the moisture content using a tool. The natural moisture in the honeycomb, after ripening, should be below 19%. But it varies. We've talked about this a lot on the show. 
it may range between 13 and 25% according to the U.S. state standard grades for extracting honey. But if you get it to 18.6% moisture below, you qualify for U.S. grade A. Grade B, grade C, honey may contain up to 20%. Anything higher places it in grade D. That's the government talking. So I try to follow that. I want it to be below 18.6. Eyeballing what we had, obviously the cap stuff was low. In fact, it's funny, the highest grade of moisture was the cap stuff for whatever reason. And that just comes from whatever the honey is. The nectar that derived it has a certain percentage of water and maybe different colonies dry their stuff out, but it was still below 18.6. Ironically, the frames that were not capped were 17 and 18%. Could have just been the type of honey or what? What was interesting is we pulled the honey boxes and we were going to extract them that day. Actually, the next day, and we didn't get to it. They sat there for another day afterwards, but we kept them in the garage closed up. That doesn't mean that they're not going to absorb the moisture from the air, but in the opening I had talked about how we had those cooler days, less humidity, cool nights. Fortunately for us, the, the stuff sitting in the garage was in that state. That leads me to one of the things about this. I saw a Facebook post where a gentleman had taken, to be clear, honey that was proper moisture and he wanted to dry it out some. He was testing a rig. He had a big craftsman tote, you know, the kind that you could see at Home Depot or, and he put a bucket of honey in and a couple jars with a small amount and one of these small humidifiers, about the size of a loaf of bread. And he just ran the cord out, no fuss, no muss, closed the lid off and he drew the moisture down a full 1%. Now, of course, you know, people being people, I'm one of them, <laughs> everybody had comments. This is a silly thing to do. Why are you drawing moisture down on honey that was perfectly suitable? He had a valid answer. He said, I wanted to experiment. And sometimes when you draw the moisture out of honey, it gets a little more viscosity. And some people like that thicker, fudgier mouthfeel to it. And quite frankly, I thought it was kind of neat. And I didn't even know you could buy these. They're room humidifiers. Dehumidifiers. <laughs> Dehumidifier. Take the moisture away. That's the point. So he had a little gauge and he set it. Now, you know, everybody, Monday morning quarterback to solution, you know that you took the sample off the top. That got drawn out, but the moisture below, he said, no, I stirred the honey and then I measured it and so on. But I thought this was kind of cool. If you had a small batch of honey, let's say you did a crush and strain or something like that, and you wanted to draw the moisture down, these dehumidifiers are meant for a small room. So you probably could create some sort of small cabinet and put it in. I've heard a bunch of different plans for how people dehumidify honey. I mean, the first answer is have a good offense, right? Don't pull honey that needs to be dehumidified. Here's the problem with high moisture content in honey. 
it's probably not bad for the short run. But there are yeasts in the honey that when put in a high moisture can activate and the honey will ferment. You're going to end up with mead, not honey. But if you consume it fast enough, it's not going to have a chance to spoil. So this little dehumidifier, when I went and looked at them on Amazon just to see what they were about, most people said they were terrible in the reviews. But what they're terrible for is a room. People put this little dinky dehumidifier in a big room and expect it to draw the moisture out when it's probably 90% humidity. That's not going to work. But I would think for this purpose in a small little contained box, it would work. Now the question would be, could you get some big container that allowed a lot of surface area so you could put your honey in a flat container so more surfaces to the air to draw the moisture out? Yeah, maybe you could figure out some sort of rig. But just simply knowing about this method with a small dehumidifier, that's something to put in the notebook. I think that's kind of cool. So honey moisture, for those of you, go buy a device. They're, they're simple. The tool, you, the tool you want is a refractometer. It's, it measures honey from 58% to 98% humidity. Moisture. It's, I bought one, I think they're, you know, you could buy different ones, expensive or not. I think it's under $30. You put a drop of honey on it, you close the lid, you hold it up, and it's stupid simple to tell what your honey moisture is. And refractometer is something you probably should have in your kit if you plan to be a beekeeper for years. So Sharon went through and measured it from the frame and measured the batch after done extracting from the bucket and made sure they were all below 18.6 and it was mission accomplished. And I feel better about my sensibility of being able to look at a frame and tell, is the frame dry enough? Sharon was nervous about opening, you know, there were two boxes that no, nothing was capped. Every frame, all 10 of them in the Honey Super were open, but looking at them, I could tell they were good enough and turns out they were 17 and change, which is pretty darn good actually. So a refractometer is what you want to be able to measure your measure. Why would you guess measure? You get yourself out of trouble. Round table number seven, outreach. This past week we did two outreach sessions, one for the Warren County Fair, went and worked the bee booth, did a bee demo, a typical thing. I, I just wanted to say, you know, last year we missed the fairs because of COVID. This year, wearing masks. I think we were the only folks in the entire place wearing masks, but it was a protocol set by our president. And it was a nice show. People came up. We sold more honey this year than I think we've sold in years, which is a great fundraiser. It helps us bring in speakers and pay for those kind of things that the club does since it's a nonprofit. Bob Kloss put together a nuke and we were able to, you know, stand inside our little bee booth and do demos for people. And I just love talking to the kids. They walk up to the observation hive and you just give them information and you hope that someday maybe that talk that you had with the youngsters is going to turn into a beekeeper in the future. 
You'll remember that day that they saw the bees in the glass. And it's just kind of neat. I also will say that, and I say this all the time, it's the best one-on-one -on -one experience with other beekeepers. And every year I meet somebody new, and I get to catch up with those who I've not seen for a while. I just ask them how their beekeeping thing is going on. It's almost like a podcast for me, right? Because I get to hear them, their experiences, and they tell me their local hot report. And I enjoy that. I really do. Do I sell a lot of t-shirts and honey? I probably don't because typically there's enough people there and I do more of the outreach stuff. But I, you know, I think you can tell I like chatting and connecting with people. The other thing we did this week was our local Grange had an event for the public. I mentioned that I was going to do the talk. I had about 20 to 30 people show up. And what's interesting are two, one you know, you always come to people, my somebody was a beekeeper, and I always loved that. Or, I was a beekeeper, and it was hard, and I gave it up. These are the stories you get when you're the speaker at one of these things. I want to be a beekeeper. How do I get started? Where do I go? And then, the swarm that I captured earlier and put in a box for the new beekeeper, that gentleman was there at the show. So this is the story I wanted to come back to for him. After the talk was over, they had honey cakes. How cool is that? that the, and they were amazing, the honey cakes that the Grange made. The Grange has a pie sale every year, pumpkin pies and other things for Thanksgiving. But those folks know how to bake, let me tell you. So I won't say his name because I, I just don't want to call him out. Uh, this gentleman walked up to me and said, I want to become a beekeeper. And I thought, well, okay, here's the, I want to be, how do I get started? He said, I got to tell you this story. I have a swarm in my tree at home. I said, you have a swarm right now. You sure they're honeybees? He goes, I, yeah. He said, let me tell you, I, I'm interested in becoming a beekeeper. I've been interested for a couple of years now. I was going to do it a few years ago. I actually ordered a bunch of equipment. And then I ended up never using it because we ended up buying a house and we had some kids and so on. Turns out the kids are in school with my Sharon. <laughs> and he says, but now's the time. So I've been looking it up and I went and I ordered equipment and everything. And my wife, who knows that I wanted to become a beekeeper, saw this advertisement for this talk and said, you should go to this. And he goes, I've been really looking forward to coming. You did a great job and you... You've given me so much information. He said, this morning when I got up in anticipation of the talk, I looked outside and I saw this swarm coming in. It was amazing. And the thing landed on the tree outside, you know. He said, it must have been a sign. Well, we went and looked at this swarm and it was hanging off of a pine tree. And it had so eager to build out that it had already built a honeycomb. And I thought, how cool is this? This guy is meant to be a beekeeper. So we put a five-frame nuke box with the swarm, and it probably filled two to three frames. And I left him a bottom board, a nuke, five frames that Bob helped me fill out because I don't have any drawn comb. And, you know, we gave him a feeder and a bee suit and coached him to get started, just keep feeding him. <laughs> and I think that's just kind of cool how that all worked out. So... I say it every time, and I'll just keep saying it at the risk of being annoying. Do your outreach, folks. 
Go meet with people. Get them interested. Share your experiences with beekeeping. It's so important. You convert. So I think there's going to be three beekeepers come out of that single talk. And I have to say thanks to the Grange. It's kind of funny. It's the bygone errors of certain elks and moose and granges. At Grange, I don't know if that's a convention that's known worldwide. Agriculturally, our area was a huge agriculture area. We were known for peaches. They built railroads into our area to truck the peaches out to Philadelphia and New York City. And as such, they had these organizations of farmers called Granges. What's interesting is, I heard a story while chatting with a guy over honey cake about the secrecy in the Grange area from the railroad people. Apparently back in the day, there were conversations about what railroad people were doing and whether it was help or hindrance to the Grange people. And so the railroad people were sending representatives in to infiltrate the Granges to get all the information. So the Granges enacted a thing where you couldn't come into the meeting unless you were a duly certified member and knew the password. And he told me that upstairs, when you go up the stairs, there's a door before you can get into the big hall so that you could say the password and only then would they let you into the Grange meeting. And of course, the Grange people were lockstep with the beekeepers and whatever back in the day. And I know several people from our community that have heritage from the agricultural, you know, they were pollinators and stuff for the different uh, crops that were grown in this area. The Grange is waning. I feel bad. They have a handful of older folks that are just trying to keep it going, but they don't have enough interest from the community with becoming a farming and, you know, ag, big ag kind of thing. And it's a little bit different. I surely hope they they carry on. And the Grange building is historic in our hometown, just like any other Grange from the 1800s, early 1900s. It's kind of really cool. Old building. You walk in and it has that old building smell, which I absolutely love. I think it's so historic. Post and beam and, okay, I've rambled on enough. <laughs> Go do your outreach, folks. It's so great to connect with people about beekeeping. Roundtable number eight, extraction. Open feeding. I wanted to talk about post extraction. What do you do with all your bee boxes? There's a lot of different theories. And there's a noted practice done by a master beekeeper who a lot of people know about, Landy Simone, in here in New Jersey. She does open feeding. She sets up buckets with this special operation. I've talked about it before on the show. And she just lets the bees come and have at it. Now, of course, one of the key things is you have to have a property or a situation where you can put that far away from the bees. And as such, it doesn't promote robbing. And it is seen more like a foraging resource for the bees. Now, I've experimented over the years with different things about this. There's enough space and ground on our property in the neighboring fields to put these sources away. So this year, took all the boxes that we extracted 
put them on our cart and drove them over to where the former apiary used to be on the other side of the property, several hundred yards away from the apiary. Of course, the bees found it, and there was a massive frenzy going on around that box. It took them two days to clear everything out, and then, you know, for the next couple days, everybody comes in and licks up the crumbs that are left over. In the past when I've done this, there's a beeline from the hives to the source, just a, a constant highway manifests in the sky, and the bees are coming back and forth. Typically, I try to harvest our honey earlier in the season when there's still enough of a nectar flow that when you're pulling the boxes off, there isn't a robbing frenzy in the yard. Because they did not cap our honey this year, it was a little bit later. And I have noticed that we, we've done a couple crushing strains and other things, broken a frame with honey, and any time there's any honey spilled or any, the bees are robbing like crazy. So our experience this year with this practice of putting our honey supers out was a little bit different. Yes, we got the super highway in the sky. Yes, the bees were coming back and forth. But what I noticed afterwards was when they were done with that resource, they were on the prowl. I walked outside in the backyard, and Sharon even commented she walked out in the front. There's bees flying everywhere. It was weird. It was weird. It was almost like, uh, you know, those times when you uh, see the movies where, where bugs are flying all over a field kind of thing. They're just, you look in the sky and everywhere you look, there's something flying around. They were on the hunt, on the prowl for, for resources. They were in our breezeway. They were trying to find the way into the garage because they could smell the boxes in there. The reason I bring this up is this open feeding at this time of year when the dearth is on and there's no forage can incite robbing in the apiary. Now the good news for us is I think it was far enough away. I immediately, when I saw all this coming on, walked up into the apiary to see if they were trying to fight each other and break into the hives. I didn't see signs of robbing in our apiary. But I was afraid that's what I was going to do. And... I went through all of our nuke boxes and made sure I put entrances on this time of year just because I know this is what you should do. If you have smaller hives next to big hives and they're not protected, you should even consider moving smaller hives like five frame nukes or whatever that you built out this year away from your main yard. A lot of commercial people run their nukes in one place and big in another for this particular reason. So I've been watching. And the frenzy of cleaning all the boxes out is done, and I never saw any robbing in our yard. So that's cool. And it kind of lends credence to Landy's idea about open feeding. Now, you could take honey supers that are wet and put them back on top of the hives, but I have Epivar treatments in our hives, so I didn't want to do that. I don't want them tracking Epivar through the honey supers. Now, if there weren't Apivar on there, if I had treated with, say, Formic Pro or something, then you could put them on top, and that's probably the best way to do it. It's funny, I should have started that way. I typically treat with Formic Pro this time of year. I didn't do it this year. I used Apivar. And I would take wet honey supers and put it on top, 
and close it off with the lid and the bees would clean it out and you don't have this frenzy superhighway thing going on. So all my honey supers are empty. They're ready to go. And I'm hoping that we'll see. I think I'm a little too late. We waited for those things to be capped, the frames to be capped. Otherwise, I would have pulled our hunting earlier and put our treatments on. But it's two weeks back, and that might take us two weeks into the fall flow and miss it. But maybe, maybe this year, maybe this year we'll get some goldenrod honey. And I have the boxes cleaned out, ready to go with drawn comb, and I could throw my honey supers on at any time. So while talking about extracting open feeding, I've got to come back to one footnote that I've been watching all season. Sitting there quietly over on pad number four is Flow Hive. They've done nothing with it all season long. Nothing, 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 nothing. And I thought to myself, I have two deeps of bees chalked to the roof, and they probably would have made 80 pounds of honey if I'd have put proper supers on them and they've done nothing so recently when I came back from Seattle I just said ah, I'm not going to see anything but I opened it and one frame they had honey stored on one side one frame and I watched it and didn't think nothing of it and it sits over there in the corner and I don't really pay attention to it but yesterday I looked at it there's two windows on the hive, one in the back and one on the side. And I typically pull the back one out so I can see through all the frames. The one on the side only shows you the outside of frame number one. And every time I ever look on it, I just see bees kind of sleeping in there. I pulled it off yesterday for giggles. And it was loaded with bees and they had filled all the comb. They're so close that they're almost ready to cap it. I did a little jig, walked around the back of the hive, popped the back off, and lo and behold, every single frame has honey stored in the outside. If they keep going by fall, I'll be able to turn the crank and watch the magical experience of honey pouring out of this bigot. <laughs> I'll never use that box again, but I'm going <laughs> to declare victory. This is it. I, I just kind of think it's... A cool little experiment, fun, but I, I'm I'm amazed. I really had given up hope and was just going to pitch the thing on the junk pile. And I really feel like by the end of August, maybe early September, I'm going to be able to harvest the whole box. So who knew? The Flow Hive, it's actually going to work this year. After two or three seasons of trying, they finally did it. And it took, and, and I've had it on super populated hives, but it took whatever magic there was this year of the bees coming through the top of the box from that opening that I had chosen um, to get them to work. So, yeah. How about that? Last thing about extraction is just talking about the extraction process. A couple of things on our new license. We harvested boxes that were full deeps. A full deep, one of them, and a nuke. We thought that you could take full deep frames and put them all the way around the carousel inside. You can't. You could put one on one side, one on the other. Because the frames are so deep, they come in and meet at the point. You can't put them in the middle. There's no space for the frame to sit down in. 
Now you could put a deep and a deep inside one of the bays and then mediums in between. And that's what we did. But I was kind of surprised. I, I never checked it, but I thought that you could put mediums all the way around. I'm sorry, deeps all the way around the inside. And you can't. In the end, it's no big deal. We don't typically put deeps for obvious reasons on for honey supers, but this year I had one. The rest of the extraction went really well. And I think total wise, we're 200 pounds or, or something. We still have, and I pulled the frames out of the lands hive. So there's five or six frames out of the lands hive that are going to do crush and strain. And actually, I think what Sharon's going to do is cut comb. When I go to EAS, I'm going to try and find the cartridges, and she's going to cut them by hand and put them in there because we've never done that. So from a honey gear, honey production, and we only had a handful of full-size hot. The rest of them are all kind of smaller. I got to go to work. That's what all that dinging is about. It's a reminder to tell me that my meetings are starting. But to finish this, a good extraction here. And we want to be able to sell honey. We're setting up our LLC, which you'll hear us talk about. And we're going to do some honey sales in the spring. So we've got a good batch of honey to label and start our fledgling business for that. So extraction, open feeding. Interesting experiences this year. Uh, always learning about this as you do it every year. And 2021 was uh, a good one. Roundtable number nine. Soap. I wanted to uh, revisit something. This just popped into my head. I wanted to sneak this into this episode and offer some commentary. People can reach out to me in various ways. Way too many ways sometimes. I say that because I just can't keep track of all the places people reach out to me. Facebook, YouTube, email, Twitter, Instagram, the website, comic feature, and so on. I don't happen upon some comments in the lesser areas I check, but every once in a while, right? I like feedback. I often preface that with, please send me feedback, pro or con, and I do mean that. Much of the feedback that I get is supportive, and it's unusual to get criticism because, you know, I think everybody practices what they were taught. If you have nothing nice to say, then don't say it at all. That's not as well healed in today's culture, I guess, but every once in a while, I do get some negative feedback, and to that end, a comic came through about uh, the soap episode, 188, where I did a feature about our making soap came through on the website. The shorter the feedback is, they didn't care for my style and the information I conveyed. And I'm paraphrasing what I received from it. It was oversimplified. It came across as too much of an expert. And some of my advice was ill-advised. Fair enough. I guess, you know, the first thing you get when you receive feedback is... I didn't respond with a reaction like, you're crazy, you don't know what you're talking about, blah, blah, blah. I sent a message saying thank you for that feedback. If you let me know what's wrong, I'll do my best to correct it. And that's what this is about, I guess. Uh, when I looked back at it, 
I think if you don't, I'm going to say this about recording a podcast episode. I'm in a headspace. I'm thinking what I'm thinking. I'm trying to convey a thought while trying to manage a thought and sound cohesive as I go through. And sometimes what I'm saying doesn't necessarily come out through the words. If you listen back to that, I expressed both sides of it. One, I thought it was a complicated process. I was daunted by it. But in the end, when I did it and I followed the instructions, I didn't find it hard. That's me, fretting. I don't, I don't usually fret, but when it comes to certain things, I want to be successful. And that was my headspace at the time that I did that. I guess if you perceived the fact that I expressed confidence in the fact that I had success, you could say I looked like I was an expert at it. Make no mistake, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not an expert at that. In fact, I wouldn't give you the recipe, and in the end, I said to buy a book and follow the book. The second feedback that I got from that was that they didn't particularly like how I panned internet websites. I'll explain that and hopefully clean that one up too. There's so many good websites for different things. If you want to become a car mechanic, there's great websites for being car mechanics. If you want to learn how to grow roses, there's a community of practice that's the best place and a resource on the internet that you can go to. And yes, there are good soap forums. I, being a complete and utter novice, don't know of any. I wouldn't know what good or bad is. But my sensibility would be, and this is just my sense from practical living on this earth as long as I have, books are generally edited and reviewed. And you could sniff test, hopefully you've done enough homework. And I did. I did a, quite a bit of research on how to make soap beforehand that you have the general gist of how to do, you know, pick a book and use it. The thing about the soap that I made was it's the base recipe. It's the one that never fails, and it's very simple. You can get really complicated. In fact, I was saying to Bob Kloss the other day that I'm looking for goat's milk because the next recipe I want to make out of the particular book that we own is goat's milk and honey recipe, so you could see what the appeal would be. I don't mean to say that there aren't good websites out there. I will tell you that I can't tell you which ones are good or not. This person wrote in and said that there are actually better websites where you can get expert advice and a lot of books are really dodgy. I didn't know that. But I would think, sorry, this is me being a jerk again, any book that you buy, a basic soup recipe would probably work and it did. So maybe my recommendation of buying books, you know, I would Look for what is the best recommended books and do it that way. And maybe you could do more research and figure out which websites are the best ones. The point of what I said that I didn't express very well in that episode is not Facebook, <laughs> not Reddit, not whatever. People just yammering back and forth. I'm going to try this. I'm going to do that. That looks great. It's very similar to the conversation I had recently about canning recipes. You want trusted recipes. I will do my best in the future when I am trying to talk about things that I have no business talking about because I don't have the practical experience to emphasize less it's easy, go do it, and more I'm a novice and 
you know, I'm trying this out and this is how my experience went. So if it sounds like, and I know I sound this way all the time, right? People, um, I get the perception, I'm in my headspace again, that people think I'm arrogant and have that moment about how I say things. I could go back to the De Marie thing I said last time and, you know, you might think that I was thinking the guy's a jerk for calling me out. That's not the case. I'm trying to figure out this world and how to say things without going there. Because I'm generally a positive person. I I have no use in calling people out unless they seriously do me wrong. So in the case of the soap episode 188, I still stand by my thing. I think it would be great to find a good book. But do look for good resources out there. And by all means, you know, seek out somebody who knows how to do it. And make yourself some soap. I'm going to do it again this winter. Uh, we got a lot of really nice capping wax that will will make some nice cosmetics in when the time allots after the season shuts down. It's goat's milk and honey on the list. So, thank you for the feedback. I do mean it. I don't know if I sounded like that. <laughs> I hope you understand that I do mean it. And uh, if you have any feedback like that, please write in, and I will do my best to correct anything that um, I may understate, overstate, physically be too stupid to understand what's going on. And, yeah, thanks for that. So here I thought I wasn't going to find things to talk about, and... Nine roundtables, how about that? Local hive report, 18 hives on the property, down from 20 as summer progresses. It's been the typical year when considering hive development. You put bees in a box with fledgling queens. Some do well, some struggle, some simply cut bait and you just move along and combine them with something else. Stronger hives to prop them up or so on, so... Down to one of the swarms was queenless, combine that. The other one didn't look good, as you've heard in the last local hive report, combined it. I wanted to speak to one hive that had the small outbreak of European fowl brood, what I did from it. I have documented the progression of the hive and how it was inadvertently contaminated. The queen castle was provided one frame that had EFB, and unfortunately the queen was compromised as a result. I had to remediate that hive, which was a three-frame nuke, by purging two brood frames that looked pretty dodgy. There was a question on Facebook recently about UIV, about EFB, what do you do to recover? I purged the frames. I think that's the most important aspect of it. The bees should probably be purged too, but in my case, when I purged the frames, I kept them isolated, put some frames in, to see how they carried on. They carried on fine once the European fowl brood bacteria-laden frame was taken out. There was one in particular. And the bees seemed to recover okay. There was one frame in that hive. It was drawn this year by another colony. And it was completely capped honey that I had put in there for food. So it's not like the bees who had European fowl brood stored the honey and capped it. It was capped already. And they were just using it as... So I didn't discard that one. I made the intervention, which went this way. The high body was a six-frame polystyrene nuke divided down the middle with a divider, and it had two three-frame colonies in it. The one on the right was the problematic one. 
It had about two frames worth of bees. And it did not appear to have a queen. Otherwise, I would have just kept trying to see if I could get it through. I looked through it a week and a half ago. Bob Kloss came over one day. He looked through it. I looked through it again. And then just this week, I looked through it. And there's no evidence of queen and couldn't find a queen in there. During that operation, the last one, I think after that many inspections of a three-frame hive, no less, that queen I found, there, there isn't one in there. So I culled the two frames earlier. I gave the colony two replacements with drawn comb. I smoked the hive subsequently extensively, and I pulled the divider to do a join of the two colonies. Let me clean that up and make sure I didn't say that wrong. I replaced the two frames, let the colony set out for a little while, found that it recovered okay, and then I did the join. I didn't do it all in one operation. I am enduring a little bit of risk, because it is possible that the bees have European fowlbrood bacteria, and but the other colony was bigger and stronger, and I think in time those bees will perish because of attrition, and the new bees coming from the new queen on the other side of the colony will replace things. And with clean comb, I think everybody's going to be okay. Moving on to some other hives in the apiary. Let's talk about hive one and hive four. Hive one, I split apart to make my queen castles. And it was down to a five frame nuke in the bottom of a full size deep. I need to feed that hive and make it bigger, but what it would really do well with is an infuse of bees. And ultimately, I want it to be two deeps when it goes into winter. I turned around from hive one and looked at hive four, which is the all medium hive, and thought it needs to be all medium again. It had three mediums, a deep and a medium. There's a story to that that goes through the entire season. I pulled a medium out and made a split and then it swarmed, but the, the top deep was there in a time when I did not have resources to put another medium on it, so I put the deep in because I had frames of comb. They built out that deep. I was kind of hoping they'd use it like a honey super, but they didn't. They made two frames, maybe three frames of full honey, but the rest of them were brood frames. They had moved and pushed the brood up into that deep box. Somewhere along the season, I had put another medium over top with foundation in hopes that they would then, since I found brood in the deep, make that a honey box, draw the comb out and put honey in it. They never did that either. So that box was, let's just say, a hodgepodge. I think somewhere along the way it swarmed too, even though I did all that I wanted to do. In thinking out loud, let's pull that deep out of hive number four and put it over on hive number one. That was a plan that I developed. And that's what I did. I pulled the two frames of honey, stuck them in the extract pack, and I gave them frames of foundation. One frame of foundation, one frame of drawn that I had in reserve. I looked through that box and found the queen on frame number five. I safely tucked her away down into the bottom mediums and pulled that box and did a newspaper join over hive number one. The top box, which I wanted to be honey, that never became honey, now is sitting on top of the stack and it's back to an all medium hive on pad four with four boxes. 
there's enough bees in there and resources and so on that I don't even have to feed that hive. It's ready to go to winter. It has its mite treatments on and it's buttoned up and it'll go into fall that way. I smoked the bottom hive on number one, the bottom hive body, and I did a newspaper join. In summary, this technique is pretty well known, but you just take a single sheet of newspaper, put it over the bottom box, poke a couple holes in it with your sharp hive tool, and then smoke the top box and put it over top and smoke them and smoke them. In time, they'll chew through the paper and go through those holes and they'll become one colony. And I'm happy to report that after about four or five days checked in, and they did indeed chew through the newspaper and are operating as one base. So the good news for me is pad number one, the hive that I raided to build all my queen castles for the queen rearing stuff, now has an ample workforce and I'm going to feed them so that they can draw comb on any of the frames that still have some foundation. Not a great time of year, but I think if I feed them enough through to October, they'll get things sorted out. And if I have to, I have a couple full frames with some drawn, and I'll look at their progress, and if they're not doing it, I'll swap out. But I really want them to build comb. Stupid, stupid time of year to try and get them to do that, but I'm going to see what happens. And, you know, but paper... Merger successfully, voila. Uh, I think that's pretty good. For the current period, one of the primary focuses just feed the bees. The primary focus at this point is to build out any of the new hives I started this late spring, early summer, so that they'll be full size colonies. They all have new queens, and they are all in six frame polystyrene equipment. I have one six frame that is six over six over six, one that is two over two, no, one that is six over six, it's two boxes, and then I have four of them that are single layers, they're a six frame period. I'm feeding all of them, and the hope is to get the every box to at least two six frames, six over six by winter time. So feeding, feeding, feeding. I think I can get all of those boxes to that state so that they'll be ready over winter and anything that comes through will go into a full-size colony first thing in the spring. The rest of the hives are just humming along. They've got their treatments on. I figure I can pull that mid-September, do my mic checks to see if they are uh, still loaded with mites at all. And if they are, uh, I have the Formic Pro sitting in the wings and the temperature should be a little cooler come September that I could put that on. So the game plan this year swapped things out. I was anticipating doing Formic Pro in the summer, but I put Apovar in instead. Mostly because at the time that I was doing it, it was too hot. I have been working to cajole the Waray Hive to build out. During the dearth, they have been a bit reluctant to build out any comb, and they're simply just not big enough to overwinter right now. I would truly like them to double in size, but they need to draw comb, which is something they're probably not inclined to do this time of year. So to induce them, I have been feeding them every day, 
two cups a quart one-to-one -one sugar water some days they take it down by lunchtime and other days they do not now I have a box sitting there with frames that they started to build at one point and when we went on vacation I stopped feeding them and all work ceased so I'm hoping the construction crew can come through at least I keep telling myself that they're going to do it. I'm just trying to be patient. I figure if I keep feeding them sooner or later, they're going to do it. If I reflect on my mid-year report card so far, so good. Hives look okay. And like every year, some do well, some are moderate, some are disappointments. I can't project any sense of whether they will all get through to next spring. That's my mindset right now, though, is what do I need to do to give them the best advantage for that? You know, as spring closed and summer moves along, my mindset's in 2022. Hopefully that's intuitive enough, but I will say out loud, so you have visibility into my headspace. I say it all the time, winter survival and spring emergence happens in July and August. What you do now will play into whether you are faced with the challenges of getting things up and recovering next year or dealing with the potential for swarms in spring. I'd much rather be in that house than cleaning dead outs. Healthy bees, large colonies that can keep the colony warm over winter, proper stores, well-formed comb for them to nest in. I think a lot of people don't pay attention to that. These are the things that are on my mind this year. On that last note, my comb is well-formed. I get to go through other people's hives and there are quite a few occasions where I could say, I see crappy comb, plastic foundation that's not built out, one third of the frame I still see the black foundation, things like that, white foundation that people have. It's too late for bees to build comb. However, you could swap crappy comb out with good comb before winter comes while it's still warm if you have any. Or at minimum, move it to the outside and make sure it's not where the nest and cluster would be. I just harvested 12 full-size frames, and all of them are very good quality comb. I plan to use them to supplement any crappy comb that I'm going to call this year. The crappy comb, if it's still fresh enough to be used, let's say they built a funny wonky comb or whatever, I'm pull them out. I'm not going to throw them out. I'm going to put them in my swarm traps for spring. I use swarm traps as transition into real. And then when the colony gets established, I put in foundation. So it's all part of the plan. None of my comb is so old that I wouldn't want to try and use it. But if it's truly crappy comb, like malformed, really terrible, they didn't build one side, cells are messed up, the foundation was screwed up, whatever, it goes in the solar wax melter next summer. Summer 2021, things are good. Queen rearing didn't really go as planned. So I would give it a B, C plus. But there's always next year. And I have plans in my mind to really get that on track for next year. And as to the rest of the playbook, it feels like the game plan is mature enough to keep things on track so that we can overwinter these hives and have bees to play with in the spring. So my focus is get to fall, get to October 31st and make sure all the colonies have all those things that I talked about.
Local hive report, check. I guess it's, uh, I've, I've worn it out. I've, I'm shocked that I found all that to talk about. I do not have brevity today. Sorry if you've had to labor through any of that. I'm excited about heading to EAS. I submitted my presentation and Sharon cleaned out the car for the trip. I feel like it's always nice to be in a tidy vehicle when you're riding on a long trip. Carpets vacuumed, dash wiped down. It's a 10-hour run to Kentucky from here. Probably could have booked a flight, but truth be told, I'm going to drive down in that southern swoop, and I'm curious to see what the land looks like, because ultimately, someday, that's the area I want to kind of migrate to in my older years. I've made a to-do list for things that need attention for when I get back. <laughs> I'm already thinking of that. That's how it is for a beekeeping operation. There's always a running to-do list. I have some hives to freshen up, painting, and I want to go through all those six-frame hives that I was talking about, make sure that all the spacers are in there. The six-frame hive holds six frames, but because they have the spacer to make queen castles, there's actually a little too much of a gap on the outside, and the bees will build comb over. So Doug Potter showed me that you could put something like a follower board in there, and I got the uh, table saw out this weekend, and made a bunch of those to go and make sure that every box has one of them. I'm harboring a notion to enter the honey show for the hunting fair. I have this stupid thing about honey shows, I have to admit. It's like a Kevin moment. Over our 13 years, I've selectively taken time to enter shows here and there when I've had the time, and I've won first place in every one that I've submitted. I don't say that to be a jerk. I don't know how that happened. It's like a miracle of something but it, and look it's only a handful of shows i think there's maybe four times i've entered different things over the years now the question begs do i want to risk our perfect record <laughs> actually it's not about trying to win it's about i hate to stand at the fair and talk to people and look behind me and see the empty case i think that looks awful where is the pride in that so if you have a fair going on this year even if you just take three and put them in a jar and put them up, fill that case up. Come on. I have to put my money where my mouth is. And I had Sharon pull out four jars of honey that I'm going to filter and enter into the show. And I might even take our lip balm that we created earlier this year. Yeah, that's what I think I'm going to do. I'm also trying to muster some ideas about our new yard. We had an invite from a landowner, a neighbor, just down the road from us. Looking at the prospect of putting bees in their field has me excited as the homeowners have purposely planted a couple years ago a pollinator plot in their 33-acre field. And then what's not planted for pollinators is natural, and it has incredible habitat for bees. They took this property over when they bought it a couple years ago, and they are naturalists. They put up plant boxes and planted like tons and tons of trees and plants and flowers and shrubs and bat boxes and owl boxes and all that, and it looks like bee nirvana. Uh, they've been asking me if I wanted to put bees, and in the spring it's going to happen. I'm going to go out this fall and figure out where to put the hives. And then I could figure out a bit of time on how to build hive stands or whatever I need. And all of those six-frame hives that are in process, 
are going to get converted hopefully in spring if they make it through to full-size colonies and go over on that plot. I guess this is the moment where I step back and gaze over all that I have going on this year, and I'm thankful for it. I'm, I'm having a blast. There's some years where I just go, eh, it's okay. But this year, for whatever reason, I just had a really good time. Everything I could do is, is having, you know, having an impact on my sanity of kind of following up with all that. And I really, truly am looking forward to connecting with people again at EAS. So I think that's it. I have gone on long enough. Just got to take a moment to say happy birthday to my sister Dawn. Uh, yeah, hope, hope it was a good one. And with that, Hopefully uh, you're coming to EAS, and if so, look for me. Bob and I will be there. I'm doing the presentation on the stage on Friday morning, so if you don't find me, you're going to see me at some point if you can't stay around that long. So we'll see you at EAS if you're coming, and hope everybody's having a good summer. Stay safe. Enjoy your vacation. Take some time off, and enjoy the bees while you're out on vacation. Try and find something fun to do. Like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everyone, and be well.